Welcome back, everyone, to the next chapter of Invaluable, Achieving Clarity on Value. Today, we'll be going into chapter two, Input, Output, and Numinous Metrics. Like always, we are going to start out with the saying at the beginning of the chapter, which is part of the poetry in the beginning of the book. It says, time is the cause of all things, they said. But in that moment when time stopped the other day, the timeless cause knocked. What, so what is the timeless cause that you were referring to? Well, that's the whole um, material that comes after the sense, right? It's, you know, when you think about it this way, we are so addicted to causality that we're always trying to explain why we see what we see. And somewhere along the way, there comes a point in our life where that mental chatter ceases and we are totally in the moment. And when that happens, we get incredible clarity of who we want to be and what we need to do from that space of being. And I have found that when that happens, somehow time seems to stop. And even though we're not aware of time anymore, we are very clear on what needs to happen and why it needs to happen because that validity seems to be coming from within. I don't know how else to explain it, but that's the that's the build up. Like the whole chapter builds out and and unpacks these two lines. So there's a lot of material there to be processed. Yeah, I think that everyone is always trying to find a reason behind something happening. Uh, you know, you talk to people and they will use that phrase oh, well, uh, everything happens for a reason. A lot of people live by that phrase. And so sometimes something may happen and be like, well, can you identify the reason? And we spend a lot of time trying to, you know, break down why something happened, why I am the way that I am, even when it comes to something as simple as uh, people going through therapy or something like that. They want to discover the cause. And so it kind of uh, takes me to um, quote on a quote on page 68, no thing in existence has a particular cause. The entire universe contributes to the existence of even the smallest thing. Nothing could be as it is without the universe being what it is, which I found very interesting because it's almost like, well, I mean, technically there, there is a reason behind why something happened, but is it possible to actually find the cause or is it just something that's going to be lost to, you know, almost like these infinite possibilities? So it's a really interesting observation. And what I would say is we spend a huge part of our lives trying to find the cause of things and where this chapter wants us to go is to say, sure, you may do that say for 95% of your life, but maybe can you create 5% space to not do that and to see that there might be a more interesting game than the causality game. That's what it's inviting you into. That if you just use plain logic, I think logic leads us to that conclusion that everything is so deeply interconnected, we really cannot disentangle all the strands and say there was one particular thing. That's, that's what Nisargadatta in that quote that you read out is, is really saying. We're all looking for particular causes. And there are some disciplines that take a more holistic approach, uh, a more ecological approach, and not a particular, like, you know, find that one thing that explains it all. So that's slowly starting to happen. And, and there are some sciences that are, you know, at different levels of maturity are, are, along that arc. But that's what this chapter is really encouraging us to think about. Can we get off the reductionist one cause narrative and make space for something richer, a lot richer? And how do you feel that richness? What does that mean? And what does that do for our narratives? That's the invitation here. 
So it's almost like going back to thinking outside the box uh, a little bit, expanding your mind in some ways. Um, You know, there was a quote on the top of page 69. Carl Sagan said, if you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. Can you please explain to the listeners what he meant by that? <laughs> yes. I mean, these, these quotes are very poetic, right? I, I, I mean, who knows? He's not around to explain it. But I think, so it's difficult to say what Carl Sagan exactly meant, but here's how I interpret him. I, I'm thinking, well, if you want to make an apple pie from scratch, we would have to first invent baking. And by baking, we would have to also go ahead and invent ovens, the engineering that goes behind it. We have to invent the science of heat and food. We'd have to figure out how to grow apples. We'd have to explain the soil and seasons and how apples are harvested. And one by one, you go through it. You basically need the full theory of the universe. So you don't get a free pass there. It's like, Anything that you think you're able to explain, we have actually swept 99.99% of the entire universe under the carpet in order to be able to explain it in a simple manner. That's, I think, the essence of his quote. (laughs) That's very interesting because I think that, uh, you know, sometimes we want to... uh, it's almost like we're trying to find the simple answer and sometimes the answer is very simple, but it it's, I don't know. It's almost like we're, we're looking in the wrong forest or something. It's almost like I need to find, I need to find oranges, but I'm in a field of apple trees. It's like, (laughs) it's like, I'm not, (laughs) I'm in the wrong place, even though the answer might be so simple. Um, so on the top of page 70, the very, uh, uh, Nizagardara said this, the very urge to achieve is also an expression of the total universe. It merely shows that the energy potential has risen at a particular point. It is the illusion of time that makes you talk of causality. When the past and the future are seen in the timeless now as parts of a common pattern the idea of cause effect loses its validity and creative freedom takes its place. Uh, I, I found that uh, really interesting because it's almost like you're too focused on almost like figuring out why something has happened when it's like, it is what it is. What can we do with the space in which we're already inhabiting? Um, it'd be kind of like, say, going back to the plastics factory and they're talking about like, you know what, in order to figure out our values, we need to discuss how this plastic factory was created and what were the original intentions of the CEO and what were the people thinking back then a hundred years ago or something like that. And it's like, okay, you might get some answers, but is that really going to get you to where you need to be? I think think that's a really good example because yes, you may have been inspired by the values, but is that going to guarantee that you will have market success? I don't think so. I think you'll find inspiring ideas. You might might find market success, but it's not guaranteed by any stretch of the imagination because in the world of doing, there is so much uncertainty. Now, the, the interesting thing is we're talking about two worlds here, the world of being and the world of doing. And the distinctions that Nisargadatta is making are about the world of being. Like in that, you know, it takes us into the world of being. So it, it's saying, okay, yes, you're in the world of doing, you're constantly trying to explain things, connect observations you see from one to the other. But as you start following the path of logic and truly see that everything is interconnected, that game starts to become less and less interesting because you're making so many shortcuts and you stop making those shortcuts, you start seeing you really can't get any conclusion. And so then where do you go? 
And he says, well, then if you give up, right, if you give up that game and you surrender to the timeless now, you start connecting with a different thing, something that's not outside of you, it's inside of you. It's the creator energy. In fact, this all sounds very esoteric, but if anybody has ever gone into a flow mode, building something amazing, you'll hear it's, it's pretty typical for people to say, I wasn't aware of time, right? And that's a very simple, everyday, natural experience. It's not supernatural, okay? And, and that's one of the things that I'm, uh, I'm trying to do with this book, that a lot of the great philosophical texts talk about these deep, deep experiences, and they make them sound, or at least we interpret them as unreachable because they are so special in the way they've been written about. And yet, what we're talking about is the most natural state to be in. And most people have experienced that at some point on, or the other. It's just that we've not understood or are not accorded it a special distinction. And the moment you do it, you're like, oh, that's what it was. That's all he's talking about. Yeah, you know, you, you could feel this every, you know, a couple times a day, if you're building something, if you feel you're a builder, you know, you're, you're in the timeless now. And, and by building, I don't just mean the fields of engineering. Anybody builds things, everybody builds things, right? An English teacher builds things, build, creates spaces of learning. We build spaces all the time with the presence that we bring in any domain, right? And, and that, that creatorship, that beingness is, is what is being referred to here. That when you're connected to who you want to be, it's timeless. Right. And I, I think that really gets interesting when we discuss um, the example you gave on page 71 about plants. Um, because when we think about plants, they're not trying to find the cause behind like, oh, I'm a tree. Like, right, let me figure out why I became a tree. They're just being plants. They're not, <laughs> they're not really uh, going through all this research and figuring it out. Uh, what I really love is on page 70, 71, where you said, um, a good way to appreciate this conundrum is to think about how you might grow a plant. You need to use richly nutritious soil, plant a seed, water it, expose it to sunshine, and then surrender to nature. Days will pass before the shoot breaks through the surface. Did the gardener's actions and choices make the plant grow? No, the plant grew because that is the nature of plants. To use the nutrients provided to create new life and new energy. All the gardener did was set the context the plant needed. And I feel like sometimes for some people, that's kind of all you need. You don't really mm. need, uh, you, you look at the space around you, look at the conditions that, that are coming your way. And it's almost like you've been planted. Like, plants don't move <laughs> to, uh, when they're rooted. And so if you're rooted, what are you going to do with the space that you've been um, given to you? It says, uh, uh, what's more between planting the seed and the first sign of growth, how can the gardener know that the gardener's gardening efforts will pay off? The only way to see a sign of growth in the plant is to dig through the soil to see if roots are emerging from the seed. And yet, the moment you disturb the soil, just because you wanted to see growth, you have tremendously reduced the chances of growth, if not already killed the plant. Which it's almost like a... Um, a paradox of sorts where if, if uh, say a company worked with plants and they were trying to discover the, the cause of wh why are these plants um, doing pretty well? Uh, and they start doing the research behind the history of the company. What, how were the plants uh, taken care of a long time ago? They might spend so much time trying to discover the cause behind the plant's current condition that they're not giving the plants the love and care that they need at this current time. So I found that very fascinating. Yeah, this, this metaphor gives a lot of hope. And, you know, it's a battle of metaphors, right? We, we have all kinds of other metaphors for business, which are more around the individual leader or the hero driving change. And, and, and while that may very well be true and, and much appreciated, 
I think this is another metaphor and it, and it brings a sense of softness. It brings a big dose of humility, at least for me. It, I find it's easier for me to be humble when I, when I use the garden metaphor than the, the heroic leader archetype. And, and it, 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 it forces me to be an observer, understand or ask the right questions around what's the context in which the, the seed will find it conducive to take root, to sprout, to live. And and conversely, there might be things I'm doing which don't make it very conducive. So so it it roots my action in a broader sense, in a non-causal way, towards context, context that supports life, without without getting attached to the outcome. You know, it, it's easy to say, "Hey, I've done all of this. The, the tree didn't come, so the theory must be wrong." I'm like, well, no, I think the theory is right. It's just that. There are other things in the context that are waiting to be discovered. And let's go ahead and become deeper observers of nature. That's what this metaphor is doing. It's, it's doing a fundamental frame shift in business. Yeah, and it says on uh, page 73, our garden metaphor shows that if we create the right context, the plant is more likely to grow. If we are obsessed with taking out taking outcome measures continuously, we will end up sabotaging the very outcomes that we want. However, if we can drive the input actions to create the right conditions, that would be quite valuable. And this is starting to get into the input and output metrics. Um, can you first um, explain to our listening audience what input metrics are? Well, it's very simple. Input metrics are those that drive value-creating behavior. So in the previous chapter, we had the toothbrush example. And, and so a good input metric there is, how many times have you brushed? That's the input because what it does is it gets you to brush. Oh, the count of the number of times I've brushed a day is not equal to two, so go, go to your brushing. Now, that's not an output metric. The output metric would be things around how many cavities I have. It's, it's, it's output metrics are those that help us with value creation accounting. So yes, I might count the number of cavities I have and I hope that's low. <laughs> or how many root canals do you need? That that that'd be pretty tragic if that number is high. But just dealing with that, just looking at those numbers, uh, the output metrics doesn't tell me how to create that value in my life. So similarly, for instance, profit is a common metric, a common output metric. And the thing about profit is that it doesn't tell you how to get it. It just tells you, do you have it or do you not have it? Whereas the, the things that we talked about, the Sholi example, um, the plastic packaging story, that the, the, the four packaging traits, if we are not expressing those, then that's not our work to do. And if we count that, do those exist? They become very powerful input metrics because they guide us towards the things we can do that create value. And that might ultimately lead to profit or revenue, whatever the outcome metric is, the output metric is. So this distinction is fundamentally important that if we can separate the things we can do from the things with which we will do value creation accounting, we will find a lot of empowerment and I have generally found that if we obsess about the output metrics, the ideas in the space lack inspiration and they don't get you towards the output metrics. That's generally been my observation. Right. And, and that's a very, very important thing to note. Um, it says on the top of page 75 that the notion of future is what renders this metric an output metric. In fact, the notion of future time is a primary characteristic of an output metric. According to Alphorism 2.2, output metrics are about the future, not the present. And when I was reading that, I was like, huh, this, this is very interesting because it made me think about raising children, actually. Um, you know, when you talk to a parent, I, I, don't, I don't think I've heard of a single parent saying like, oh, I want my kid to have a horrible life and be a 
terrible member of society, uh, you know, people generally, I would say, want their children to do well in life. A lot of people seem to be focused on the output as opposed to the input. Um, it's almost like I remember uh, them talking about um, those people that will read to their children uh, while they're, the children are in the womb or they'll, li- they'll play music for them to stimulate their, their brains and stuff. And it comes to find out that based on research that reading to them, talking to them, um, you know, playing music for them, it doesn't actually make them smarter per se, but it, it's because the t- it's the type of parents that are willing to do those actions are what end up creating those more wholesome, intelligent, productive members of society. Um, so it, it's really interesting because people get stuck on like, what is the cause causality of these quote unquote good kids? And then they're like, Oh, it's because this is the reason, like, this is purely the reason they're focused too much on the output, but they're not focusing on the input, which is the actions that the parents have placed upon the children. So I found that very interesting. Yeah. And I think, I think that's spot on. It's very hard to say this particular action is what led to this particular output, right. Or outcome. And I don't know if we're even qualified to disentangle all the threads of reality that surround us. So, so this is asking us this whole philosophy is asking us to step back and and not be so sure about ourselves. You know, uncertainty is often looked down upon as something to be abhorred and let's get more certain. But what if uh, we tried the exact opposite? What if we embraced uncertainty? What if we said, you know, the stuff, we just can't figure it out and we are okay with uncertainty. And in that uncertainty, we are going to focus on some things that we are not uncertain about. And that, that's another distinction I'll make. In the land of doing, there is uncertainty because there are so many causes mixing up with so many other causes that we just can't disentangle them all. But in the land of being, there is no uncertainty. There is no uncertainty because it's it's a space of feeling. It's a space of knowing within that, hey, this matters to me. Like Things are valid because I claim it to be valid. And, and, and you, you can't say that about the world of doing, right? I, I, could, I could say, and people have said this, right? That the sun moves around the earth. <laughs> if, I, if I apply that logic to the land of doing, it'll be utterly incorrect and, and be called out. So we have to be very careful about this. Uncertainty matters and has to be accepted in the land of doing. But in the land of being, we do not see uncertainty because it's a space where there is no doing. It's a space of isness, right? I'm just here. This is me. And these are my values. These are things I care about. And if there is uncertainty in them, then we can't function. We can't make decisions. And so, so I, would, I would argue that if we were to connect and, and, and look in, this is what I have found. I'm inviting readers and I'm inviting everybody who's listening to this podcast. Think about who you want to be. And and especially when you're trying to create your life's work. And I suspect if you really listen carefully, you'll find there isn't much uncertainty there. It gets clearer the more you listen. Now, how you're going to express that will have a ton of uncertainty because you have to deal with resources. You have to deal with all kinds of uh, funny things that happen in our world. And, and there we have to use all the strategies that are available to us. Absolutely. But in, in, in the moment of clarity, in the moment of finding clarity about who we want to be, there is no uncertainty. And that is a space of the timeless now. And what if we could bring in that timeless now before we take our actions? If you can connect to that, what kind of actions would we be taking? Would they look very different from the ones we currently do? That's the question I'm leaning into. Mm. And, and and that's very important to know whether you're talking about your life or if you're talking about business. Um, if every business knew exactly how to become extremely profitable, then everyone would be following those same 
the same uh, laws, tenants, values, and so on. But that's not the case because you are reaching different demographics, different markets, different um, you know ways of reaching uh, what consumers want. Which that is why we get into uh, the bottom of uh, page seventy-five, going into seventy-six, talking about Walmart's e-commerce division. Um, like any other company, it says Walmart looks for its e-commerce business to be profitable. However, Walmart's e-commerce division didn't lead with the output metric of profitability, which would sound counterintuitive, but instead it led with five input metrics. Number one, when first of all, they would add a value of zero or one to each question. It's either meeting that metric input metric or it is not. And it goes as following. Number one, have it zero or one. Do they have a particular product that the user wants to buy? Number two, find it zero or one. Can this product be found easily? Number three, display it zero or one. Is it being displayed in a way that the user can make a good decision about buying it? Number four, price it zero or one. Is it priced in a way that makes sense? Deliver it, zero or one. Can it be easily delivered to the user's home? The elegance of this framework, and I very much agree, is that it quickly offers insights into which product lines are not easily available and the specific reasons that a customer cannot obtain it. An important thing to note about this framework is that it allows for really simple math. The numbers, if multiplied together, gives us a zero or a one incorporating the philosophy that a miss is as good as a mile. If any one of the inputs is a zero, Walmart's e-commerce user will be unable to obtain the product they want to buy. To get a one, we will have to achieve a one in every one of the five attributes. This is what we can term a binary multiplier framework. What are your thoughts upon what Walmart did with that uh, e-commerce framework? I personally love it. Um, The simplicity. Yeah, that's same here. That's what inspires me about this example, that it is so easy and so actionable. Like That's what makes it an input metric, that it drives productive action. The moment you know oh, you're a zero on this product line, why are you zero? Because of one particular reason, or maybe five, all five. Then you know what to go fix. And profits are nowhere in the conversation. In, in, so if you are focused on taking care of the customer, remember that was the conversation in the previous podcast, right? You're focused on service, the results are bound to come. If the customer can get what they're trying to buy, you don't have to worry about sales, right? Focus on what is in your control. And that's kind of the message with this framework. And, and you can make it more complicated. And, and that's the other comparison in the table on that page that, hey, if you were to make it more nuanced and say, hey, hey, how much can they uh, find it? How much can they display? It all becomes very complicated. But the binary multiplier version of it, where it's either a zero or a one, makes it that simple. And, and that's the key to this, that if we cannot make our metrics interpretable and simple and clear, they don't drive action. Like if, if I'm scratching my head on, well, what does the metric really mean? <laughs> I'm not going to be able to take action on it. So that's the power of metrics. That when we are able to create clear frameworks, it really drives productive action. That's the purpose of metrics, useful metrics, as we defined in the previous chapter. So this is just building on that foundation with another distinction, the input and output metrics. And um, although we're able, we're not able to show it, um, everyone should look at the table on the top of page 77. Um, as an example, how using a binary multiplier and keeping it very simple is actually very useful. Three products are displayed in the binary multiplier, and you can see that product number three is the clear winner. Um, But if you make it more complicated with a scaled adder, you could see that according to that, technically all three products uh, meet the requirement, which the same three products, which doesn't, obviously something is wrong there. And then that might cause a lot of issues, especially if we're talking about a business, because all of the uh, departments, employees, and so on, they're spending time trying to discover the cause 
<laughs> behind <laughs> behind this. Um, or they may put all three products on the shelf and realize something is terribly wrong, but we have no idea where to begin. And so you're, you know, as the old saying goes, time is money. Toward the bottom of page 77, it says, the derived input metric is powerful because of its simplicity in revealing product lines that can get to the user. However, just because a product is present in Walmart's inventory, is easy to find, is displayed prominently, can be priced attractively, and can be delivered does not mean a customer is going to definitely buy it. While the ground has been laid to the best of one's ability, no one can guarantee that the fruits will come. And however, uh, this is kind of going back to our plant example. The gardener does not know that those seeds will sprout um, until he or she waits a few days. It's almost like you're laying the, the framework, the groundwork, and then um, seeing what happens. But still there is a sense of doing, of being, of almost accepting the context in which you're relying in and then doing your best to work with what you have. Um, um, so is that, was that your intention in um, talking about the input metrics when it came to uh, Walmart's e-commerce, like bringing it back to the plant example? Yeah, that, that's, that's spot on. That's exactly right. I also love uh, the aphorism. I actually laughed out loud on um, the <laughs> page seventy nine, where it says causality is above our pay grade. Um, it seems that you know, again, going back to the uh, the scaled adder example, um, you know, we are trying to make things far more complex than they need to be. And it seems that complexity doesn't necessarily equal um, uh, profitability. Uh, just because you're throwing a bunch of things at the wall, that does not mean something is going to stick. So it really comes down to finding your inner value. Um, it says right below the aphorism, we can at best lay the ground. And when the tree does not grow or does not give the fruit we seek, we humbly accept that outcome and commit to observing deeper. Now that that is a saying that is um, very easy to accept, perhaps when we're talking about someone's life, but how does one um, accept that when we're talking from a business perspective or someone's career? Well, I think many things can happen, right? If you don't get outcomes in a business context, if you're lucky, and the business has not been destroyed, then you get another chance to look again. And if you have a supportive culture of learning and making mistakes, then you're lucky. Now, if the mistake is, or I wouldn't even use the word mistake, if the outcome is not the desired one and your runway is over, then well, that business is dead. And, and by the way, in, in the garden metaphor, trees die, plants die all the time, and they become manure for the next growth. Right, and we have seen in in the industry, many businesses become the fertilizer for the next one. Right, and so there is a there is a cultural taboo almost to accepting death as a way of being the foundation of life. But that is very much the case. So nobody said that we should live forever. Like I'm, thank God I won't live forever. Right, I feel very grateful that so much biomass and so many plants, animals have led to making the organic matter in my body possible. And I, I look forward to it that when my life ends, whatever biomass is left will return to the earth and support the next generation or next springing of life. And so it is with businesses, right? When we are building something, what if we were to build it knowing that it's okay, if this particular version of it doesn't survive, that's fine. And whether we like it or not, it will become biomass for the next generation. That's just the way things go. Now, if of course, there are some institutions that survive for a very long time because they don't fight nature, but they, they, they respect it. They build for it. And I think those businesses will have something to teach all of us.
you know those that are not profit driven but their values driven and and they see they believe that good results will come if you follow your values but that's not why you should follow your values even if good results don't come if we can ground on our values and it's okay for whatever the present institution is to not have to survive but our values are more important that's the kind of space that that inspires me when when somebody makes that stand that i accept the fact that i may not be around but i'm not giving up on these values that really inspires me and and i suspect that's when you find people hunker down and say hey we can't let this one die this business die because it's protecting all of us and these values matter we've got to you know this inspires us that that's what ultimately what a market is market is not stock exchange trades although it very much uh, i mean you, you see that as one one aspect of the market it really is people voting with their values in some sense that hey i i i like this stuff i want this to exist i'm going to give my hard earned money because i i want what is being offered but yeah um southwest uh, airlines uh, it was interesting um because they put an input metric uh, according to the answer to a question, who takes priority, shareholders, customers, or employees? Business school professors have posed this trifecta as a conundrum. Herb ha- had no patience for that point of view. It was very clear in his mind. I paused there to say, uh, before I read on, I was like, well, I think the answer is customers. I was like, it can't be the shareholders because, you know, they're just there for the money. And then for some reason, I wasn't thinking the employees. I don't know why. But, um, you know, so I was thinking customers. And so I wonder what anyone listening to this podcast would think in your mind. But in his mind, it was employees always came first. If you treated your employees well, took care of them and really respected them, they would treat your customers unbelievably well, and that would create shareholder value. For instance, going a little further down, when a customer was mistreating a Southwest employee at the airport, the employee's manager walked the customer over to a rival airline, bought this customer a ticket, and remarked, our employees don't deserve this behavior. I was like, wow. <laughs> um And then um, another one, um, I won't read the whole thing, but basically uh, uh, in 2011, a grandfather learned that his beloved grandson had suffered traumatic brain injuries and was brain dead. He rushed to the Los Angeles airport to take a Southwest flight to Denver to be with his grandson and daughter before the life support machine was disconnected. However, um, the line was moving slow. He tried... And so in order to get on the plane, he tried calling the customer support staff, explaining the situation. Um, And uh, it was interesting because when he got to the plane door, the plane door was still open and the pilot was waiting for him. The grandfather even requested a few moments to to hit the laboratory before boarding and the pilot responded, no problem, they can't leave without me anyway. The flight departed a total of 12 minutes late. (laughs) which can be an eternity when you are measured for on-time departure. This grandfather made it just in time before his grandson's life support machine was disconnected. His gratitude made them go public with the story. Southwest took no disciplinary action against the pilot and likely privately commended the pilot for upholding their culture of service. Um, he He was acting outside of the company rule book he had connected to his creative joy and expressed his creative freedom through the knobs he had at his disposal. So it, that that was very inspira- inspirational for me because it was like here is a pilot that he had this opportunity to he felt empowered enough by the culture of his company and the values that that they purported that he was able to make a judgment call. Um He's supposed to keep the plane on time, you know, as, as I said earlier, time is money. Um, it's a business, but yet he decided to make that judgment call. And I would not be surprised, and this is just my conjecture, that he knew that he wouldn't get in trouble. He probably at some level was like, I think my managers have my back. 
Um, and that's a beautiful thing because then the, the culture changes, not just with the airline, but also with the customers. And even though, even though, um, a business supposed to be going for profits, they put value above profits and therefore got profits in the end. Uh, that is, that's beautiful. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, this could have ended any, any other way too, right? I mean, they may have gotten disciplinary action. They may not have been profitable. I mean, thankfully Southwest has done very well, but, uh, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't, it's not guaranteed. And, and, and the question to ask ourselves is, would it still have been the right decision? And I'd like to argue, and this is where my field decision analysis comes in, says you can't judge a decision from the outcome, right? You have to judge it by the light you had when you were making it. And that light is the light of values. So if you're making decisions consistent with your values based on everything that's uh, that's doable and you've identified the one that really speaks to you, that's the sign of a good decision. You know that you've, you've looked at the trade-offs and you've taken responsibility for it. Outcome will be what it will be, but that clarity on value really gives you peace of mind that, okay, I have found my freedom. I don't care about the outcome. This is a really important point, by the way. Where do you find freedom? Freedom comes in not obsessing about outcomes. So when Nisargadatta says, be in the timeless now, that space of creative freedom, you don't care what people are going to say and how this will turn out for you because you feel freed. Your action has freed you. You acted consistent with your values. That right there is invaluable. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yes. And, um, you know, I have to admit like, uh, all those made me excited to hear about too. It made me think about, uh, again, my own values and everything when it comes to business, when it comes to life, um, and in the middle of page 81, it says, when we deeply observe such moments in life, we find that we are not thinking about time anymore and have become timeless. We become alive in such moments connected to an uplifting feeling that bonds us deeply to our work and the people we serve. A little further down, creative joy is that indescribable feeling of presence where one stand is enough to change the course of one's evolution. And I was like, oh my goodness, that's good. Because it's not, you know, it's not just about the profits that say Southwest got out of this as well. It's also like, what did, what happened with the grandfather? What story did he tell? How did that story um, inspire others to pay it forward, to um, be a little kinder, a little bit, a little bit sweeter, a little, what lightness did people feel? Um, you know, and, 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 and as you said, there's no guarantee that the quote unquote profits will come. I'm sure there might've been someone who was inspired by hearing about this story about the grandfather went to work and did something similar and, you know, might've, <laughs> might've gotten fired or, or might've gotten disciplinary action or, you know, um, and that, and that goes back to what you just said about, it's not so much about what is the, the output, but what was the, or, or what was that feeling that, that lightness that you got when you were making that decision? Um, uh, a little further down at 81, it says, what if what we thought was an input metric is actually an output metric? What if it is not a means to an end, but an end in itself? What if the gardening itself is the point? and not the eventual fruits of the plant. It kind of like go, uh, in my mind, it reminds me of that saying um, um, about uh, uh, manual, oh, how did it go? With manual labor, um, builds character, <laughs> hmm. that kind of thing. You, you, uh, you build the path, the path builds you. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, in, in the bottom of 82, it says, uh, all conversations of value creation start with us being situated in what we value, that if we are persistent, leads to a conversation on who we want to be. When we can tap into that depth of who we want to be, we can find that some input metrics drive both our action toward who we want to be and our way of being as an end in itself. That is, that is great. Um, was there anything that, um, any thoughts on, uh, the type of conversations of value creation, uh, that you might've 
had that um, would be interesting for us to hear? Well, it's it, it go, this is a very interesting point, right? When the lines between input and output are blurred, when does that happen? So the aphorisms before this talked about how output metrics are about the future, right? And input metrics are about something that you can drive right now, right? It's, a, it's about productive action. But when time disappears, that's usually when you're in the land of feeling. And that's what we're tying into these inspirational things. And, and I think very soon we're introducing the distinction of numinous metrics. You could feel them. You could feel the inspiration. And when you feel that inspiration, you feel like you were blessed to be able to do the work. The outcome becomes immaterial. And, and that's, the, that's the key point of this, that the, if you can identify what the numinous metric is, suddenly it's a blessed life. It's, it's like a life full of grace, in a sense. Yes, and like on the, on the top of 83, you said, as gardeners, we have created all the right conditions for the young plant to thrive. We have eaten the sugar peas that have grown successfully from the beanstalk, and yet what the rest of the world counts as the measure of a successful gardener does not seem to move us. What moves us is the strange and inexplicable love of life expressed through the bonding the gardener feels with the plant. It is almost as if it is your child growing in the soil, and pain caused to it has the same intensity as pain that has befallen a beloved family member. That, oh, I like that because it is true. Um, you know, when you are taking care of something, it might be a plant, might be a pet, might be, uh, you know, a child, but there is a sense of, of almost loss of something that you're tending to, that you're caring about. And how beautiful would, would it be if people looked at their job or something that uh, normally is given a negative connotation? Um, what if people were able to find the value in whatever that is and make that beautiful, provide that care that they would to a plant or a pet or a child? Um, yeah, yeah, and you're circling your your you're enlarging the circle of what it means to be I. That there is something more in it that's in your definition of what I is. So right now we just feel pain when it's happening to our bodies, but when that circle of concern enlarges, we feel pain when the people we care about are suffering, and that can extend beyond humans to animals to to trees, plants, and if we are really aware and we can see around us, then it's the entire ecological landscape. It's how everything sustains life. And you see that as being hurt and you feel hurt. And you can see that a lot of people in, in the climate science movement feel it that way. And we're talking about the, these are scientists, right? They've dedicated their entire life to protecting and understanding how nature works. And, and it's not intellectual, it, it's actually a deeply, I mean, intellectual, of course, the way in which it manifests, but it's usually rooted in a, in a deep sense of caring that makes them emotional. And that's, that's really beautiful. You know, all of us have this capacity, whether or not we're in the academic um, profession or not, everybody can feel this expansion of care. Yeah, and it, and it kind of goes into the aphorism 2.4, on 83, when time ceases to separate input and output metrics, it is the realm of timeless work. And that's when it starts, as you were saying, the circle starts start spreading out. Um, and that's when we kind of get into community. Um, on page uh, 85, when you are telling the story, um, so... You know what? I, I'm actually going to ask you a little bit about it. Would you mind telling the story um, to our audience? Um, sure. It's a. It's a. The story here is that my daughter was going to a school, and it was a private school, and they'd have a fundraiser, and the fees were already feeling heavy to me, and and when when they announced the fundraiser, I'm like, oh my god, there's more money to be paid here. And so when one of the parents in the school reached out as the fundraising coordinator for the class, 
Um, I was in a very defensive mood and like, hey, this year has been hard and I'm not sure if you have that much more to give. And this parent said, hey, it doesn't matter if you give 10 bucks or a thousand bucks. What matters is that you give because you're a part of the community and we are optimizing for percentage participation and not for amount raised. And the moment he said that, it just lifted a huge burden off my heart because it's like, oh, yeah, I am a part of this community. I really do like the school. And it's not about the check size. So we ended up pushing ourselves and gave more than I would have otherwise done. And and that got me thinking that they had this big poster on, on the percentage participation every day. Their goal was to make it 100%. Why? Because we're all together in this. It wasn't the check size. Even though the check size also matters, you know, the check size is small. You want to be able to do the things that need to be done. But the point of the story was, in a, in a busy world, in a world where we, are, we have so many conflicting concerns, it's very easy for me to miss the deeper story when the metric is on the output side, which is like, how much money did you raise? But in this particular case, the input metric for me was percentage participation because that drove community action, that, that inspired this parent coordinator to reach out to everybody in the class saying, hey, let's get that, num- that number to 100%. And, and the thing that's really interesting about that metric is it felt numinous. The word numinous is so good. It means inspiring. And it inspired me to action. And it also made me feel bonded where it pretty much didn't matter what the amount raised would be. It felt like the outcome in itself that if we say we want community, it's this metric precisely without any explanation needed that connects me to the community. That itself is both an input and an output. Right. And, and that's a very special metric. So I recognize that, you know, you can call me a collector of numinous metrics in a sense. This really stood out to me. And it says um, on the bottom of 86. Yeah, I love that story. Um, it says on the bottom of 86, if we were to unpack this story, the amount raised is as an is as an important output metric that helps evaluate whether the fundraiser met its goals. However, I didn't feel much inspired by it. And if the metric of 100% participation hadn't driven the volunteer parent to talk to me and share the metric, I would not have contributed to the amount raised. To capture this thought, I am going to define numinosity as the ability of a metric to inspire us. On that scale, percentage participation scores very high and is a powerful input metric that drives productive action. And that is a metric that I feel more and more businesses need to evaluate. Um, so, and, and, and by businesses, I would say that includes nonprofits as well. The school was a nonprofit, and you know, it's a it's one of those things. Every organization would benefit by thinking about their newness metrics. I, yeah, I totally agree with that. And I like also how. It not only um, it not only uh, was it contributing to uh, the participation and helping them raise their goals, but you also make it a point to talk about how it made you feel part of the community, and so it kind of goes back to those businesses who, or or you know um, any community really, that focuses on what are our values. Because then it becomes more than one person. It becomes more than just, uh, say, the CEO or a leader of a team uh, just saying, like, this is what we're going to do. These are my values, essentially. Uh, it becomes what are our values. And so it made you, it inspired you in a way that is far different if they were saying, you know, we, we need this amount of money. We would like you to. Uh, participate because you are simply a member. Um, that is that is very that's very interesting. Uh, it says on the bottom of eighty eight, we can define a numinous metric as one that allows you to feel the connection to its underlying underlying value without needing much explanation. So it's kind of like <laughs> it's almost like going back to that feeling, that lightness, almost um, going back to whether you're evaluating a business, a situation, a movie, a book, 
you know, what uh, the gardener with the plant. It's like, what, what is that feeling? It's not so much about the end result. It's about what is that lightness that you're feeling that is uh, the new metric that's kind of like driving it. Yeah, so I really love that. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, did you feel like more of a part of the community after that too? Like even after um, that situation was over with? Yes, yes. I think that continued and it deepened, you know, I mean, they, they had a very good messaging around uh, education not should not be transactional. It should be more contribution driven and, you know, community driven. But these things landed because of that fundraiser fundraiser for me and, and the metric that they were using to optimize. That's where the rubber hit the road, you know, in a sense. So it's, it's, these are, you know, the, the, the stress test of a, of a culture is when, when nobody's in the room to explain it and the values still land because of the design. And was it in one of the previous podcasts where it's talking about that road at Stanford University that's curvy and windy, it's built a long time ago, no one's there to explain it, but you walk through it, you are experiencing those values if you just keep walk with your eyes open. Right. 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 Um, There, there's just like a certain feeling you get from it. And sometimes, um, you know, there is beauty, even in the simplicity Um, on page 90, when you're talking about, it says going back to the, the skull example, we can see that the four packaging. Oh, surely. Yeah. yeah, Oh, excuse me. Um, Going back to the shoal example, we can see that the, or surely example, we can see that the four packaging traits, safe, natural, economic, and sustainable, have a natural ability to inspire. They have far greater numinous power than revenue in EBITDA. It takes some explanation to make the case that this company wants to make money for the same reason that bigger corporations do, in service of their values, to make the world safer, more natural, more economic, and more sustainable. Um, going down a little bit further to the last paragraph, an important aspect of numinous metrics is that one can think of them as a metric of grace. We shall define grace as those wonderful outcomes that befall us to which we can't clearly trace our causal action. When the community at um, Peninsula School is inspired to make the participation metric close to 100%, that is a matter of grace, something that can never be commanded but received with humility. When Apple's teams feel pride in their work, that is not something that can be mandated from the top. That it happens at all is grace. When Southwest's employees go beyond the company rulebook and truly serve those in front of them, that is grace. When Sholi's employees feel inspired by their four packaging traits and deliver on it, that is grace. Um, That's very interesting. So um, talking about uh, when we're talking about numinous metrics, it's about uh, grace. Um, It is about feeling inspired. Uh, There's almost a lightness to it. And it is something that um, interesting enough, cannot be mandated. <laughs> you can't be at the top of a corporation and tell your employees, I want you to feel proud of your work. I demand it. <laughs> like, we'll see, let's see how that goes. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I will say that this, and you may have noticed this, that, that it, this book is really an attempt to take secular humanism to the next level. Right, we, these words have been the domain of religion, usually grace. And what this book is offering is for a, for a large number of people who do not subscribe to any religion. What? How do they understand grace? And this is giving a definition of grace the way I understand it in a secular way, and in almost uh, you know, say even a non-religious way. There's a good outcome. This is universal which you cannot explain. Like, what did you do to get this outcome? That is how I define grace. So you'll see definitions of these words that were previously the domain of religion being explained in almost atheistic terms, if you will, uh, and and yet extremely meaningful, you know, extremely deep. Right. And, and one example that I really liked was on 91, where it says, um, uh, uh, talking about a venture capital firm 
It says it felt really special to us when the entrepreneurs we declined to fund still sent other entrepreneurs our way with a glowing referral for our process. Going a little further down, such referrals from the heart cannot be mandated. When it happens, it is grace. A good numinous metric to reflect this might be number of high quality referrals we receive from those we decline to fund. <laughs> this is very interesting because there's no reason for them to send referrals to that venture capital firm. However, there was something about the grace of it. There was something about the in, them being inspired in spite of not getting the output metric that they were looking for. Mm. Yeah. Um, and on um, um, bottom of page 91, it says, you have to start with discovering what feels really special and use that to help you find what you uniquely value. As you have seen in chapter one, what you uniquely value also shows up in how you uniquely serve other people. At this point, you are inspired to get to know yourself better. You are inspired to find out what you stand for, what moves you deeply. But being the astute reader that you are, there's one voice in your head that won't go away. That voice asks about the conflict of values. What if people have diametrically opposing values of the kind that gets us into wars or hurts other people? By putting values on a pedestal, aren't we sanctioning bad behavior if someone chooses a value that hurts others? Now, to me, that <laughs> to me, those questions are very fascinating. I know we're going to be getting into them uh, in later chapters a little bit, um, but I, you know, I, I have to say that 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 is a very interesting question. Um, talking about um, values. We're also talking about numinous metrics, which means there has to be a measure of grace to it as well. Um, in your, uh, and, and, and that's something for them to remember. It says uh, on 93, numerous metrics, aka metrics of grace. These are input metrics that inspire us by connecting us to our values. When the connection happens, it is hard to tell whether these are input or output metrics. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to say on numinous metrics before I um, uh, give our audience the questions of reflection? And that's a word that has utterly captivated me, numinous. I invite people to go to the dictionary, look it up. And uh, in the past, like depends on when you look at, you know, when you look at the etymology, you, you see it's connected to religious inspiration, spiritual inspiration. But I think you can think of it in a universal sense, it's just being inspired. And not much more needs to be said about it, that it's it's so deeply real and tangible. And, and what I will say is oftentimes you will hear in the business world, upside down language. And, and it connects with the word tangibility. So things that are measurable are considered tangible and things that are not measurable are considered intangible. And I'm arguing for the exact opposite. Okay, if you can measure it, but not feel it, that's intangible. But tangible is, is real, right? And, and, and if you if the numinous metric is coming in your space, that's one of those things that breaks the, the, the pattern altogether, because it's measurable. And you can feel it. That's why they're so important. They're tangible. Whereas, uh, you know, if you, you know, backing up a little bit, mother's love, when we feel it, we know it's tangible, not measurable, but it is definitely tangible. You feel it, but revenue on somebody's balance sheet, you don't feel it. It's a number. Now, of course, hopefully trickle down, you know, you get your paycheck, you're able to buy things for, with it. Yes, that definitely has some reality to it. But the word tangible, I want to reclaim for things we can feel, we know are real, right? And, and numinous metrics are, are very special because on the one hand, I'm saying metrics should not be considered tangible. On the other hand, I'm saying, oh, but wait a second. All of those rules break down and numinous metrics are a miracle. A miracle when even though we've defined the framework as, it depends on which side, like the other folks might say, oh, these are, you know, you know the feelings are different than their own category. And numinous metrics blows a hole through whichever framework you pick because it bridges. It says, yes, you can measure, and yes, you're deeply inspired by it. So that's why it's worth, in my mind, 
at least attempting to find them. And and I can't answer what the numinous metrics are in everybody's context because it's a deep internal search for the individual's values. So getting clarity on on one's own values is a starting point of the conversation. But it's still uh, that's still very good because it's it's making it's really like taking someone's hand and guiding them down a walk of determining what they really want out of life, what they want from their job, what they want uh, from uh, their family and friends, friendship and different things. Um, so this is really good as far as, you know, uh, determining like, you know, let's think outside the box. Now let's think about our values. How do we define them? Now let's talk about those moments in which you were truly inspired and you feel light and you, there's uh, moments of grace and everything. So it's really like building the foundation um, uh, for people to discover uh, uh, and uh, that invaluable spirit, having that, that clarity on, on what they're trying to reach. Um, so that's very good. Uh, and the questions for reflection again, for everyone that needs to, um, uh, to hear this, to think about meditate upon uh, number one, what did this chapter open up for you or in this, you know, this conversation? Number two, what are the input metrics that are useful in organizing productive action in your context? Number three, what are the numinous metrics in your context? How much do they connect you to your values? I personally really love number three because it's asking you right out, what are your numinous metrics? Because if someone says there aren't any, it's time for a lot of evaluation. Number four, what possibilities do you see in your engagement with metrics at your workplace after reading this chapter or listening to this conversation? And so I think that chapter was very good about breaking down um, input and outputs and really saying how numinous values is really what we want to aspire to. And so in chapter three, that is exactly what we're getting into. It, it will be titled Numinous Values. And so everyone, please uh, join us when we get into Numinous Values in chapter three. 